what a difference a year can make. Last year I preached about an empty tomb to an empty room. And this year I get to celebrate Easter with you guys. I heard that for some of you this is your first service back since the pandemic. Great to have you back. Congratulations on the Sunday that you changed out of your sweatpants. But this morning we are here to celebrate the resurrection of God's Son from the dead. He is risen. Amen. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then we are the worst of all to be pitied. But what we know is, is that he is risen. In fact, over 500 people witnessed the Christ resurrected at different times over a period of 40 days. It was right before he ascended to the Father. And things got crazy quick on that Easter Sunday morning. Reports of the empty tomb began to roll in. Others began to report sightings of the resurrected Christ. Those are words I think that if we were to hear, they should elicit a kind of hope and excitement. Well, the first reports came from Mary Magdalene and and other women, and then later by Peter and John that they had seen the empty tomb. And, And then they started to receive reports of the resurrected Christ who had been walking before and talking to people. So uh, Mary Magdalene saw Jesus in John 20, 11 to 18, the verses just before this. Later, we find that Mary, Salome, and Joanna, and at least one other woman saw Jesus. That happens in Luke 24, 10. And then Luke 24, 34, it mentions that Peter saw Jesus at some point on that day, that same day. It was also followed by another sighting, Clopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. And Luke 24, 36 tells us the disciples were talking about all of these things, which was likely at least the Emmaus Road encounter, but but probably others as well. Which means that when we roll into our text this morning, at least seven eyewitnesses have seen Jesus at this point, and perhaps more. Now, we're picking up with what seems to be the fifth appearance on Easter evening, this time to the disciples in John 20, 19 to to 23, which we just read. Uh, This story seems to also appear in Matthew 28 and, and Luke 24. But in John 20, if you look there, you'll notice in the verses before, Mary Magdalene has seen the resurrected Christ. And Jesus has to tell her not to cling to him. I love this image. Because he has not yet ascended to the Father, it's almost like she sees him as a helium balloon that's about to take off into the atmosphere, and she's like, don't go away. We don't want you to go. And Jesus says, I'm about to go, and you can't stop me. Now, notice a few quick points of context as we look at our text this morning. First, the resurrected Christ is already in this moment, as he has just been raised from the dead on the day of the resurrection, talking about his ascension, where he is going up to be with the Father. Second, the disciples have likely heard the reports of the empty tomb and and, and the risen Lord throughout the day from the people that they trusted most in the world, the people they loved most, trusted most, who had walked through life with over the last three years. Uh, They have heard these reports rolling in one after the other. And third, John tells us the main point for writing this gospel in total, in John 20, 30 to 31, is this, that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name, a truth that is still true for you today if you've not believed. Well, our big idea this morning is this, the scars of our resurrected Christ turn our fears into gladness that sends us running to tell others. If you take notes, that's a great thing to write down. It's this, the scars of our resurrected Christ turn our fears into gladness and send us running to tell others. Now notice first in our text this morning, in verse 19, we see that our resurrected Christ appeared to those living in fear. Now, the scene looks noticeably awkward. The disciples appear depleted and endangered to welcome their risen king. It it wasn't like us singing just a moment ago with confidence and joy. They were still beleaguered and confused. Now, a woman, Mary Magdalene, as I just said, has called those scattered disciples to come back together to meet with Christ. Now, at least at this, at this time, ten-ish disciples showed up. Ten-ish, not twelve. You'll remember that Judas has killed himself at this point, and Thomas took an unexplained and perhaps unexcused absence, as we read on later in John 20. Now, Peter is here. He likely joined them just days after he had denied Jesus Three times as he approached the cross, three times he denied Jesus in a way that looked very weak. It was before a young girl. They hardly look like the ambassadors of an eternal, unshakable kingdom, which the gates of Hades would not prevail against. They they don't look like the fearless warriors that Jesus said they would be for the kingdom. They're shaking in their sandals. Notice it says literally in verse 19, they were fearful. And catch what happens there. Here's what God's word says in verse 19 of John 20. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, a group of tenish fearful disciples huddled together as they hide from the Jews who just killed Jesus and likely wanted to kill them next, were were fearful. Now to be clear, John exposes that the Jews outside the locked doors that night were intimidating bullies. They were dangerous. Through the whole Gospel of John, he's telling us about how violent and dangerous these men were. If you read through, you'll notice when you get to John chapter 7, verse 13, it says that no one even wanted to speak publicly about Jesus for what? Fear of the Jewish leaders. And then as you keep on reading, you'll find that as you get to John 9, 22, there's this incredible miracle where Jesus heals this man's sight and his parents, when the Jews come to him, them and ask, So how did your son receive his sight back? They act like they don't know for fear of the Jews. They lied to him because of fear. These these men, these Jewish leaders, they they were were scary men. You'd think the disciples would have been celebrating at this point for a number of reasons. I mean, you, you think 
as reports of the empty tomb and the sightings of the resurrection king begin to roll in, that the response would be confidence, not trepidation. You wouldn't expect Peter, who saw Jesus earlier that day, to say, bolt the door. That's not the image that you would get from somebody who has seen Christ face to face. And didn't they remember that Jesus taught on this and performed miracles that prepared them for this event? I mean, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John eleven twenty four, and then declared, I am the resurrection and the life. Had they forgotten that? And before that, Jesus had said that he had to die and be raised, like he did in John 10, 17 to 18, where he said this, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. In fact, in Acts 2, after Jesus ascended to heaven, Peter is preaching powerfully. He is thundering the gospel. And he's actually preaching at one point from Psalm 16, which he says promised and assured us that this king that we looked for would be raised from the dead. But we're not at Acts 2 yet. We're at the night of the first Easter Sunday, and the tennis disciples are on lockdown, fearful, huddled, and hiding from the evil that is outside the door. And maybe that's how some of you have come in this morning. You know, maybe you're a non-Christian, and you fear death. I've heard a number of reports from friends and friends of friends who have no hope in the return of Jesus Christ, that, that God has, has saved them. And they are terrified of this pandemic. Not that it's not scary even in Christ, but they're, they're terrified. They're terrified of death, and that's only grown as they've sat in lockdown with an endless feedback loop about the dangers of death and pandemic and the tolls rising. And so maybe you're fearful of death this morning. You know, Christians can fear as well. I mean, if you become a Christian, you know that fears don't cease, right? There, there's still all kinds of things that that tempt you and, and, and cause you to fear. Some of you have maybe received terrifying news about your health just this last week. Or maybe you fear losing your marriage or your child, either physically or spiritually. Some fear a friend or family member uh, moving away. There's been a lot of movement in this whole pandemic. Maybe you feel like the government is taking away your freedoms. Others are not doing enough to keep you safe. And so you have political fears. Some Christians fear their fears. And this is what I mean. That their faith is not strong enough to save them because they have fear. And so they fear that that fear evidences that they don't have the kind of faith that the Bible speaks of that saves. Some fear the highlight reel of their past sins or present battles with sin, fearing that their sin is stronger than their Christ. But fears tend to cause us to huddle and hide, don't they? I mean, most of us, when we think about the worst possible thing happening to us, the image of our response is, oh, I think in that moment I would probably be in what? Some closet in the fetal position by myself crying out to God. Our fears cause us to huddle, to turn to ourselves. But hear the good news here. In John chapter 20, 
with the resurrected Christ. We find that in this moment, the fear of fears is actually intruded upon by Jesus Christ. And look what it says. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. How many of you would love for Jesus just to come and sit on your lap during your fears and say, peace be to you? I love the the vision that we get in F.F. Bruce, who actually looks at this event and understands it to be the ground of that beautiful phrase, Maranatha. That phrase that we find at the end of 1 Corinthians 16, 22, meaning, come, O Lord. When they say, come, O Lord, they're thinking, remember when the disciples were terrified and they prayed out to you and you showed up? Show up! Come interrupt our fears with your peace-promising presence. The resurrected Christ appeared in glorified body to these fearful disciples. They remind me a lot, this image of not mighty warriors, but of a football team I got to watch at one of my kids' award shows recently. It was a football team, and uh, they only had 10 players show up. The team had 15 when they were in full force. And they said, we're sorry, uh, some of the team was injured, wasn't able to show up, but we got 10 today, and the first one comes in, I kid you not, I think it was like on a wheelchair. The second showed up, and there was like this big cast, right? Like the foam ones that like keep the arm up and, and just sort of protect it. I think there might have been like a head wrap in there. They're limping in, and they're like, here's an award. Y'all won zero games, but you, we appreciate your effort, right? And I was thinking to myself, man, that is like a never get up, a give up kind of attitude, super impressive, but not the team that you're choosing to go to the Super Bowl with, right? But here we find that Jesus appeared not to the undefeated team, not to the team that was most feared, Jesus appeared to those that were actually living in fear. Now, there's some debate as to how Jesus got in here. Uh, Some, I love this, they say that it looks like Jesus jimmied the lock. But when I read John 10, it doesn't seem like that's the way that Jesus enters a room, right? He comes through the main door. It's the thief that comes in through the side door. In fact, I, I, I believe that if you look at Luke 24, It seems there that when it says the disciples were startled and frightened because they thought that Jesus was a spirit, it was because it seems that Jesus just appeared in the room. Doesn't mention a door being unlocked or even opened. Why? Well, because he walked through the door donning his new glorified body as though he was immaterial. Now, many ask what Jesus' body here in doing this means for our new bodies. And I don't know about you, I mean, like, I could spend all day just dreaming about what's that new body going to be like, right? I mean, I was watching, like, the NFL Columbine, watching guys run four flat. I'm like, I've never run, like, half that. Do you think that maybe? I don't know. We'll see. But I don't want to get distracted by, by all of these things. You can talk about those things at lunch. But here, Paul seems to engage this idea, or rather, John seems to want us to think about the reality of Jesus showing up in the midst of these disciples' fears. See, I wonder if the disciples felt in this moment guilty for not doing more to protect Jesus. Or if Peter still felt guilty for denying Jesus for fear of a little girl just days before. See, they didn't expect to see the glorious Christ appear, it doesn't seem. They were shocked. I I wonder what they expected Jesus to say if he did show up, though. I mean, would he chastise them for for their fears? Would he correct them for their failures? Would he call Peter out by name? 
and he knew what he'd done. Everybody else knew. Did he have to say it out loud? Maybe you wonder what Jesus would say if he were to appear to you. But hear what Jesus says, the risen Christ. He says, peace be with you. Isn't that beautiful? Peace be with you are the words from Jesus to these tenish disciples. Uh, this is a common Hebrew greeting of that day. Peace or shalom, it speaks not just of the absence of fighting in your life, but it, it actually speaks also about more about a, a beautiful kind of harmony of all of life. It speaks of joy and, and fullness. Every Jew longed for shalom in the home. They rarely got it in their experience as a people. But do you think that just perhaps John 16.33 took on new meaning for them in this post-resurrection moment? It's there you'll remember that prior to the death of Jesus, Jesus said this, in me you have peace. In the world, outside your door, you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now that peace is nearer than ever before for these disciples. Now I know that our minds can drift here into dreaming about the implications of Jesus' glorified body with ours, but catch how Jesus helps these disciples ID him in verse 20. How he helps them identify him. Here's what he, he says. Notice, Jesus' scars turn the disciples' fears into gladness. That's what we see in verse 20. Jesus' scars turn the disciples' fear into gladness. Take note. Jesus shows up in his resurrected, glorified body. And what does it bear? The scars of his wounds. The new body still has evidence of the old work. Verse 20, he says this. When he had said this, he showed them his, his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, you almost get the sense that the disciples were, were so befuddled by the appearance of Jesus that he needed to give them some hard evidence quick so that they would know what they were looking at. Uh, it makes sense. You know, Jesus' scars, they would, they would prove historically verifiable evidence that he had been raised from the dead. That he wasn't some kind of myth, that this wasn't some kind of metaphor, that he wasn't a spirit, but that he was actually died in the flesh and had returned bodily. Now maybe they still had the image of their pummeled, bloodied savior hanging from that cross, almost unrecognizable, marred. And so to have him there in his glorified body, it must have been a shocking sight. Now, John 19 tells us the Romans crucified Jesus on a cross. This explains the wounds that he showed to prove his death. Now, crucifixion was a punishment. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. In fact, F.F. Bruce said the word crux for Christ here was uh, unmentionable in polite Roman society. Even when one was being condemned by, uh, to death by crucifixion, they would simply say, hanging him on the unlucky tree because cross was such a dirty word. See, Romans nailed Jesus' hands or, or wrists, same language, and feet, Luke adds feet, to the cross where he hung naked before the passing crowds as they mocked him. And if you read in John, they wanted to speed up the death and to do that, they were going to break his legs. But as they drew near to Jesus, he was already dead. So we're told there that they actually pierced his side. 
And in John 19.33, it says this, One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. See, Jesus was uniquely pierced and died for our transgressions. The Father sent his Son to come and take on the weakness of human flesh, becoming a spectacle of humiliation at the cross. He, he bled and died for you and me. He also defeated sin, death, and the devil at the cross. And even more, he absorbed the just wrath of God that you and me deserved by his sacrificial substitute offered once for all at that Passover celebration to bring us all the way to God. That's the work of the cross. This is why John Stott calls him our Paschal Lamb. Now don't miss this, his resurrection body. Are you hearing this? Will forever bear the scars of the wounds that healed you and me. You will always see those glorious marks. Here's the irony. Some of you have some kind of scar that you're trying to get rid of by plastic surgery. You, you think that it's ignoble. It doesn't bring honor. It's not beautiful. And yet there is something altogether beautiful and glorious and life-giving and hope-developing in the nature of the scars of Jesus Christ. They are the scars that have healed you and me. On Good Friday, Jesus' pierced side proved death. They looked at it, the side's pierced, the blood's coming out. Yep, he's dead. And here they are three days later, and they're looking at the same side and the scars, and they're saying, well, he's alive. What a glorious transition in this wound that has healed us, that once meant death but now speaks life. Now, what do you think is the difference between the Jewish leaders on the outside of that door and the Jews on the inside? Because it seems that there is a major difference. They had lots of similarities. Both, I believe, were looking for that eternal son of God, that godlike son of man character from Daniel 7, who descended on a chariot of clouds. This kind of, of king was the kind of king like the nations who would come and rule the nations like we read about in Psalm 2. They all looked for that. The gods of the nations and their kings boasted of strength, but notice that this king's scars declared power and weakness. The Jews outside wanted the king of the first part of Isaiah. That king, they were willing to welcome the conqueror that the last third of the book of Isaiah speaks of. But they did not see the sacrificing servant who bled and died for his people in the middle of Isaiah at its heart. See, Isaiah 53, 5, which speaks of the suffering servant who was to come, says this. He says, but he, he, this, this king, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds. We are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, we all desire a king and a conqueror, but we needed a man of sorrows who would come in humility and weakness to lay down his life for our sins. That's what humanity needs. See, the wounds of our risen suffering king, our healing balm for sin-sick sinners, fearing this world and deserving the wrath of God. Do you hear me? That's what we need. 
Those who are inside the room understand that what is outside the room and terrifying, what, what they really need, the answer is not on the outside of that room, but up in heaven, it is God himself. It is his king. See, Jesus, his scars will forever tell the story of the line of Judah who came as a sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. And the disciples knew the scars meant Jesus was alive. And therefore, they had forgiveness of sins and peace with God. Jesus' scars, they made them glad. Now, if you're a non-Christian, know this. Jesus did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. He did not come for the spiritually healthy, but for the spiritually sick. He didn't come for those who were spiritually alive, but those who were spiritually dead. He didn't come for those who had a spiritual fat bank account. He came for those who were spiritually destitute. Jesus came to take on our weakness and our debts, our failures, our guilt, to bring us all the way to God. See, Jesus came for people who struggled even to believe when they saw the risen Lord with their own eyes. But if you don't believe the gospel this morning, it is not, hear me, it is not for lack of evidence. The Bible is replete with testimonies of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Lord. In fact, one of my favorite stories is that of Anthony Flew, who was once an atheist, did not believe in God, began to study the evidence of the resurrection, began to study arguments for God, and came to say, you know what, I don't have enough faith not to believe that there's a God. I just don't know who he is. But when he was looking at the evidence about the resurrected Christ, he said, look, here's what I know. The evidence is, overwhelmingly, over 500 people did say they thought they saw a risen Christ. I just don't like to think of it as an actual reality. Instead, I would prefer to believe it as a mass hallucination. Of course, a mass hallucination is, by definition, I looked up, not a thing. If you have a mass hallucination, it means that you individually are seeing something that no one else is seeing, and therefore you are, by definition, crazy. But these are witnesses that were looking at the same event at the same time. Now, I don't have enough faith myself. If you're a non-Christian, I just want you to know this. I don't have enough faith not to believe in the resurrection because of the evidence. But the evidence is not enough to give me the faith that I need. We need God himself to give us his spirit. See, if Jesus is risen, forgiveness is possible, and Jesus is risen. That's the good news. Wounds can be healed. See, Trinity Bible Church, I, I just think this is a great place for us to take a minute and just think about a spiritual leadership. We, we need to be reminded in all of the different spheres that God has placed us in that we are a people that need to study the wounds of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that we have a conquering king who also bears the wounds that brought us near to God. So he did not come for a people who could save themselves or fearless faith fighters. It is not a bad thing to be able to admit and confess when we have sinned. It's not a bad thing to admit and confess when we are weak and unable and needy and desperate for Jesus. See, Jesus came for people who struggled to even believe when they saw the, the risen Lord himself. And we, we are those who are living in all kinds of spheres of leadership where we need to be quick to confess our sins and quick to forgive others. Unfortunately, aren't we just so often, I don't know about you, but aren't we so often to be super quick to see sins in others and condemn them 
It's super, super quick to, it's super slow to forgive others who sin against us. And isn't it supposed to be inverted? Like we're supposed to be quick to confess sins and, and we're supposed to be slow, like to, to take offense and quick to forgive. Like we just need to flip the script. We need to flip the script as husbands. And sometimes one of the most powerful tools for your marriage is confessing your sins and pointing towards the wounds of the hidden, the risen Christ to bring fresh hope to your marriage. Guys, how many times have you done wrong against your wife? Maybe this week, maybe yesterday. I'm not confessing here. But in that moment, you know that all you need to do is confess what you've done wrong. And for some reason, it's like the last thing in the world that you want to do. Rebellion is still alive. We've forgotten the wounds of Christ. Many of us are so slow to confess wrongs and forgive wrongs, but Jesus' scars come with the promise that we're not alone. The the healing relationship is not just based on me and you picking up ourselves by our bootstraps. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That's what the scars testify to. They're still working. And parents, I I just want to know, have your kids ever heard you actually confess sins before them? You admit to wrongs. Or are you like the Greek God of your household? Never sinning, always perfect. I think part of good discipleship is modeling repentance even before our kids. And you need to know that your elders are perfectly aware that we are not super Christians. We have a church that's led by a group of elders, a plurality of eldership. I know we look like superheroes. It's true. Some of us think we think that about ourselves. It's, it's not true. In fact, if you were to watch all of us, you would know that we're, we're, we're human. We, we know of our humanity. We all take our, out our trash or, or have our kids do it. And we are regularly reminded of our deep need of the scars of the risen Christ. The Christ who helps weak, beleaguered Christians who are looking to follow the Christ who had to die for us. God constantly drives your elders to confess, Father, we don't know what to do. Give us wisdom. Help us in our weakness. We ask God to surprise us by doing more than what our feeble hands can account for. And many times he does. He surprises us by his grace. But we are weak and frail, progressively being sanctified as we seek to shepherd your souls. And as we love you, we feel more and more our desperate dependency for the help of God. We need that kind of leadership to grow in us and in others, in our homes. We need to be a people that that never forget the scars. A famed preacher, Vance Habner, he asked a good question here about the scars. He said, where are the marks of the cross in your life? Maybe that's a question you can ask yourself. Are there any points of identification with your Lord in your life? Alas, too many Christians wear medals but carry no scars. Some of you have have scars for the gospel. You have faithfully walked through others who have seen the death of someone they love, a husband, a wife, a child. You've entered the brokenness of this world and been faithful. Some Christians have have scars of other types. You've lost jobs from ungodly bosses. You sought to be faithful. You lost marriages when you sought to be faithful. You have past sins that God has redeemed you from and you're seeking to be faithful. You haven't been perfect, but you've sought with a good heart to honor Christ. We tend to hide our scars rather than pointing to the scars of our risen Christ to bring hope, even to the scars of our own lives. 
know, if Jesus is alive, he raises the dead. We have a future and a hope that is secure with his scars, not ours. Our lives don't diminish his work. But he redeems our wounds and he uses our scars for his glory. And take note, third, Jesus sends huddled disciples off to tell the good news of forgiveness of sins. Remember those, those disciples, they were huddled in a room. The door was locked. Jesus shows up. And here we find some verses in 21 to 23 that remind us of a, a plethora of New Testament verses. Uh, it, it reminds us a little bit of Matthew 28. Uh, in some places, it, it looks a little bit like what we would read about in, in Matthew 16 or 18. But notice what he says here. He says this in verse 21 to 23. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so am I sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, these verses, they remind us of all of the verses that I mentioned, yet here, notice that I think there is a nuance that John is driving at in his gospel. There is an evangelistic focal point to the nature of this mission. Notice first in verse 21 that Jesus sends the disciples. They're in lockdown. He says, I'm sending you. Now, Jesus has brought them peace, but he also sends them out as peacemakers into that troubled world. you, You think about this. They're fearful of what's outside as the story begins, and now they're glad, and now we find Jesus sending them. Now, I take this to mean this fact that he gives them peace and that he calls them to be peacemakers, that if we have been justified by faith, we've put our faith in Jesus, we become a Christian, we experience peace with God. And we experience peace from God as a spiritual gift that we're called to to practice and, and live out with others. See, we must cultivate this peace in our lives and seek to be peacemakers Jesus said this himself. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. So if you do not have faith in the biblical Jesus, the the biblical story is you don't have peace from heaven. And I don't think that you have the same kind of hope for peace with others that Christians have. But notice here what happens in verse 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now we know that doesn't mean that we are sent in exactly the same way that Jesus is sent. Right? We are not messiahs like Jesus is the Messiah. We are ambassadors of peace and reconciliation. But we are not the source, the ultimate source of peace and reconciliation. But John sees Jesus is here in his book. He sees Jesus is going down and coming up as a very significant image throughout his gospel. And he continuously says this signals Jesus going down and coming up The end times when the Holy Spirit would be given to God's people as the prophets had promised. And which Jesus himself had promised back in John 16, 7. He said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper cannot come or will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now that's why verse 22 tells us this. The Spirit will empower their mission. The the Spirit will empower them as they go. Uh, Notice that and that begins verse 22. 
It's connecting verse 22 and 21. And I think this is important. I think that John is showing that the great commission of going is connected to the giving of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? You need the Spirit for the mission. Now, the Holy Spirit is called elsewhere in John the Helper or Paraclete. Now, the mission here requires the Spirit. And in English, verse 22, it looks like something very interesting is happening. In fact, when you read it, I think you were probably going like, this looks so weird. It looks like Jesus went, and like the Spirit came out on them, right? Well, that's why we need to talk about this for just a second. Now, some of you are probably asking, this is strange for a couple of reasons, not just because of the whole thing, right? But also because you're remembering like, but wait a minute, the Spirit doesn't come until Acts 2, after Jesus ascends, and he hasn't ascended yet, and so is this like out of order? What's going on? What is John doing? Well, there have been a number of answers that have been given. Uh, Don Carson catalogs a ton of them. Uh, let, me, let me just give you a sampling. Uh, some say that this speaks of a spirit of power in John 20, but it's not the person of the Holy Spirit. That comes later at Pentecost. Uh, Calvin had an interesting view, John Calvin. He said, they got sprinkled with grace here, but saturated at Pentecost, whatever that means. Uh, some see a double coming of the Spirit. Others see John mixing up the chronology, the timeline, knowingly to make a theological point. And his theological point is this. The death and resurrection initiates the promised sending of the Spirit. Now, I think the theology is good, but I don't think that John is mixing up the timetable here. Uh, and, and the reason is, I think Don Carson made a great point. Pentecost was kind of a big deal for the early church, right? Like the day that the Holy Spirit pours out, like it's sort of like, Man, I, I still remember when I was, uh, where I was on 9-11, right? Big event, hard to mess with that memory, like it was just significant. Well, for the Christians, everybody would have remembered Pentecost, and to mess with that, people would have said, okay, you can mess with a lot of stuff, but not Pentecost, right? So here's what I think is going on in verse 22. I think it's really meant to be proleptic. It, it points forward to a future reality that is coming where the Spirit would come at Pentecost to bring about new life and new mission, the Great Commission. Now, let me just give you a few points to clarify why I think this. First, uh, remember, the ascension is already in view, right? Do you remember that? Uh, we began with, like, Jesus talking to Mary Magdalene and the verses just before this. And she's wanting to hold him down because he's about to ascend. And he's, and he's like, no, I got to ascend. If I don't ascend, you don't get the Spirit, so I got to go. Second, notice that because there's no, in this verse, you can't see this in the English, but in the, the Greek you see that there's no object for he breathed. You know, he breathed on them is really just added. It's really more like he just exhaled. He, he, he breathed. Uh, a translation that's given is this. And when he said this, he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. But you might say it sounds like they needed to receive the Holy Spirit that very moment. Because he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, that leads to a, a third point. Now doesn't always mean now in John. We see that a lot. Let me just give you one example. John 13, 31, Jesus says, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. That doesn't happen until later though, right? At the cross and then the resurrection. And so he's saying now this thing is happening. He he is speaking, this is in sort of the, the context of what is happening, not in this moment necessarily, but soon and very soon. And that doesn't happen until later. And then fourth, the disciples' lives. If you follow them throughout the rest of John, You don't see the kind of power of the Holy Spirit in the rest of John after verse 23 or 22. Uh, Jesus doesn't breathe the Spirit on Thomas when Jesus sees him. He just shows him the wounds and and he believes. And Peter still seems worried about his position when he asks, what is to happen with John? I know that I'm going to have to follow you into death, but what, what what of John? And you don't see the disciples out on mission in John. In fact, Peter's out fishing for fish, and as John ends. But, but what we find in Acts 2 is that he's preaching fire and fishing for men. There's a change that's happened after Acts 2, right? So I take it here that it's speaking of a future thing that is coming in the very near future. But notice in verse 23, the Holy Spirit will empower disciples to proclaim blood-bought forgiveness. He says in verse 23 this, If you forgive the sins of any, you, you are forgiven, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I know that some Roman Catholics take this to speak of the authority of church leaders to give actual forgiveness and take it away. But this is, I believe, a mission of every disciple that is spoken of here. And I think it's a mission that's tied to the preaching of the gospel. I know this might sound complex, but I think John Marsh explains this verse well in his commentary, the Gospel of St. John. He says this, There is no doubt from the context that this reference is to forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness. But though this sounds stern and harsh, it is simply the result of preaching the gospel, which either brings men to repent as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God, or leaves them unresponsive to offer forgiveness, which is the gospel. And so they are left in their sins. So Christian brothers and sisters, don't miss this. Jesus gives his disciples, his spirit, to help them see Jesus, to sanctify them, to build up the church, and here specifically, to share the gospel that that centers on the forgiveness of sins. Now, you'll remember that Charles Spurgeon has that great quote where he tells us that we need to study the wounds of Jesus Christ. And I think that takes new light in light of the wounds that we find in the Gospel of John of our resurrected King. Those wounds don't only speak of what has happened in the past and what is true of our justification, but point to the future and our mission and what we are called to. So I want to think about this just for a minute with some closing applications really quickly. Uh, First, we need to gather to scatter, and then we need to scatter and then gather again. Do you see what I'm saying? It's interesting that in this story, we find first the disciples huddled fearfully to meet Jesus for fear of what's out there. And once they come and they gaze on Christ and hear from Christ, they go back out to declare the mercies that are offered them, the forgiveness is given in Christ. So brothers and sisters, we know that throughout the New Testament, our gatherings are supposed to help us scatter better. We are better evangelists when we are good church members. In fact, John, in John 13, 34 to 35, says, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And by this love, 
all men will know that you're my disciples. Now, who are the all men? Who are the all people? It's those people outside of the church. There is a kind of love that happens within the context of the local church as we gather that ought to foster and encourage us to go back out and share Christ with others. Hopefully this morning, as we are gathered to consider the risen Christ and the wounds of his hands, when you leave this building, you want to share Christ with someone. You sense there is a family member, a friend, a neighbor who needs to know Jesus, who needs forgiveness of sins, and you can share about the forgiveness of sins knowing that he has given you his spirit so that you can do it. Amen? I'll take that as commitment. But second, we as a church need to know that we want to be known as a church, as a people who are forgiving because we have been forgiven much. We want to be a people who are quick to confess. We, we don't confess stuff we didn't do, but we honestly confess stuff we did. We admit our faults. We admit our weaknesses. We want to be quick to declare the sufficiency of Christ and that it means that we can be a confessing people, that we can forgive others, that we can forbear the sins of others, that we can bear a lot because we have been forgiven so much. We want to be known as that kind of church. I know it's easy to be suspicious of other people and Christians, especially when we're locked down in our houses and we watch the internet a lot. But let's be quick to confess. Let's be quick to admit where we failed. Let's be quick to forbear. We want to be known as that kind of people. And Christian, let me just ask you, do you know that God wants you to be an ambassador of reconciliation, to make forgiveness known to others? Now, I know our lives are clunky, but do we understand that though our lives are clunky and God is progressively sanctifying us, that our lives really can empower our witness, that when we are living in obedience to Jesus Christ, when we are making much of him, when we are seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit, that there is a sense in which we sense that the Holy Spirit is going with us and guiding us and directing us and helping us to make Christ known in ways that you just sense are stronger. I found that in my life. I've also found that when I am living in a way or I have ways that I'm, I'm not repenting of sin, like I know it's hindering my witness. So this morning, the, the point is, is that, you know, your witness this morning might be weak because you are in your conscience feeling guilty over sin that you just need to confess. Knowing that your life needs to change, not just for your eternal destiny, but the eternal destiny of others who need to hear from you about the forgiveness of God. Not only that, Christian brothers and sisters know that the Holy Spirit calls us out of our holy huddles as we fear the world to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't want you to leave without knowing this. I want you to enjoy your lunch, but I want you to hear this. Jesus Christ has given you his spirit to do all sorts of things, but one thing is very clear. It is to witness and testify to salvation and forgiveness that only comes through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not engaged in that, then it, it's likely that you're feeling in some way spiritually stunted because that's what you've been made for. 
can I just tell you this and just confess this to you? Like, I don't feel like I am a great witness of the gospel. I don't feel like I'm smooth in sharing the gospel with others. I can't tell you how much I have to pray for people before I share the gospel with them. And I try to live a pretty, like, sort of regular, systematic life where I do the same stuff, go to the same gas station, go to the same coffee shop, meet the same people. I want to be known by them. And when I'm knowing them, I'm praying for them. And I'm praying, Lord, I'm such a bad witness. Will you just open the door wide open so I can make Christ known to them? Will you give me some kind of entranceway? Uh, This last week, I've got a guy I've been praying for for literally like four months. That's how bad I am. And I had one day where I had this great idea. Oh, it's his birthday. I'm going to bring him something. And like, just, hey, man, go, like, here's something for your birthday. I'm not trying to be weird or anything. Just wanted you to know I love Jesus. I'd love to talk to you about Jesus. And uh, he left early. And I'm thinking, I'm a preacher for goodness sake. I'm horrible at this. I beat myself all the way home. The next day, I show up, and uh, guy's there, and I'm still praying, confessing my, my weakness in evangelism, and the guy comes up, and he says, man, my life is just a wreck right now. I'm like, whoa. Like, I was just getting a polar pop. And I said, well, tell me about it. And he shared a little bit, and I was like, hey, you want to just go grab, like, coffee sometime and talk about it? Because, like, it sounds like you need somebody to talk to. And he said, yeah. He said, I, I'd like that. He said, like, man, I'm just messed up. Like, I know there's, like, a Bible says something about, like, people being chosen. I just feel like I'm not chosen. I'm like, well, that would be a great thing to talk about. And so we're going to be meeting up for coffee to talk about the gospel. I say that just to say, you might think I'm not a great evangelist. Well, neither is your preacher. I probably shouldn't confess that, like, you know, publicly. I share the Christ all the time, Christ all the time, and yet I feel like I'm just bad at it. I have so many friends who I think are even awkward who are just great evangelists. I'm like, man, I wish I was as awkward as they were so that I could, like, share the gospel in the way they do. Like, they just don't even care. They just share Christ, people get saved, and then I go and preach, and people get taught. So I just want to encourage you, though, as, as we go from this place, Know this, God loves to use weak people to make forgiveness of sins known that is only possible in Jesus Christ. And maybe you think, man, I'm just, I'm too weak, not smooth. And it could be that you're just the kind of object of weakness that Jesus loves to make much of his power known in. Share the gospel. Pray. Trust God. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we celebrate the glories of a risen king. We didn't see it coming. We did not see our dead king forgiving us of sins and being raised from the dead to declare that we can be forgiven. Lord, you did that. And so, Father, this Easter, as we go from this place, help us to be a people that walk in the confidence, not of our abilities and our strengths and all of our preparation, but ultimately in the glories of your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of his wounds that have healed us and to continue to heal others who put their faith in him. We ask these things in your name. Amen.